Welcome to the Scaredy Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwendiger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight analysis and product fabrication that you can help, that you can take into the office to help fix your organization. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Hey, Matt, did you hear that Satoshi Nakamoto is getting divorced? What? I can't believe it. Yeah, his wife served him notice via NFT. Oh, it's okay. I'm sure he can resell it for a bunch. Just for any listeners, I apologize for any background noise. We are had some dinner and we're recording this after dinner and it was nice and quiet when we were eating dinner. But <laughs> then everybody came in. Yeah, maybe next time we should record first, eat after. Maybe we should actually. You know what? You're probably right though, because if we come at five o'clock, five o'clock is just naturally a quieter time. And as the evening goes on, it gets busier and busier. We probably should. Yeah, because the old people are done and the young people haven't started. <laughs> it's the yeah. sweet spot. Yeah. All right. Our first title here is Here's Some Bitcoin. Oh, and you've been served from Krebs. Other summary sentence is perfect, so I'm going to go ahead and quote it here. Quote, a California man who lost $100,000 in a 2021 SIM swapping attack is suing the unknown holder of a cryptocurrency wallet that harbors his stolen funds, end quote. Uh, apparently, this is the first time that a message in a blockchain has been served, used to serve notice. Although there's an example later, but the one later was an NFT, right? Yeah. Right, so, okay, so this is the first time where. So it is kind of sad that they weren't able to get any help from law enforcement, so they had to do this themselves. What, you expect law enforcement to do some work? <clears throat> Ridiculous. You're right, $100,000 was not enough money to get them interested. No, I mean, they wouldn't even put on their pants for that. I regularly put on my pants for 20 bucks. <laughs> I'd take them off for 15. <laughs> that's what they, they give me 20 to put them back on. So, we had a company work with him that specializes in tracing crypto. They told him what wallet the crypto ended up in. But it's currently unknown if the attacker still holds the wallet or someone else or the government. They may have seized it because the address is apparently involved in some type of federal investigation but it's unknown how or if it has already been seized. So, we sent the address $100 in Bitcoin. Why $100 in Bitcoin? I know, I like that. I would send him a buck. Yeah. And attach the summons to it as part of the metadata of the transaction. Maybe the $100 was enough to make them pay attention. They're like, oh, where did this come from? They are, well, I don't know. I mean, if they're, if they're making tons of money stealing from people, maybe they wouldn't even look at a hundred bucks either. <laughs> like, what is this? I don't know. That's not even worth looking at. So I personally have decided that this is the type of email protection that I want. If you had to pay me to send me an email. <laughs> that would be awesome. I know, right? So I went to check. I was like, oh, has anybody built this yet? Email, but on the blockchain. So you have to pay a fee to send someone an email. And someone has. I'll include the link to the GitHub. But someone wrote a simple app that puts all of your email. Well, it puts the headers on the blockchain. It doesn't put the content of the email on the blockchain. That could be a problem. But... So I, I kind of like this idea for email. Like if it's a penny or something. Yeah, I'd be a penny to email my friends. I'd, I'd you know put like five bucks into it. I email rarely enough that five bucks for five hundred emails would probably last me the year. Uh, I mean, when actually, I mean, if you're talking about digital currency though, like Bitcoin, you could do fractions of a penny because that's in, no. infinitely divisible. So you wouldn't even have to do a full penny. That makes sense because. It just has to be, and it's kind of like the idea of slowing down logins by one second. Like, that's not enough for a human to get annoyed, but a bot. Like, if you're sending out a million phishing emails and you have to pay $10,000 for it, you're not going to do it, right? 
Well, that's like there there used to be the the idea about when you know spam really started getting going in the early 2000s about the idea about a proof of work to send email. That makes sense. So you couldn't get the it would just take this so much effort, you know, in order to send an email that yeah. vast amounts of email simply would not be worthwhile for the spammers to send. See, and that works for real companies too. I don't want to see 90% of the shit they send me. <laughs> Make them really like send me the stuff that I care about. <laughs> uh, you're gonna put Mailchimp out of business. Good riddance. So I actually I'm curious if this is a worthwhile way of phishing wallet holders. Sure, it costs money to send something, but you can pretty sure they you can be pretty sure that they have money because you could see you know the transactions in the wallet potentially. And you could definitely target it to folks that had a lot of money, and it would be very very specific because you could send it to a Bitcoin wallet knowing they have Bitcoin. And send them a link that would you know, connect a wallet or something and drain their wallet. I don't know. This is the Bitcoin fleece. <laughs> Please click this link to, I don't know. Wait, so you're talking about sending uh, a malicious link via the blockchain? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> of course, the problem is that link is there forevermore now. Oh boy. A bunch of kids just sat down next to us. This would be a terrible idea. Yeah. Maybe we well, stop recording the rest. Well, we'll, well, this might be the last one. We'll see how bad this gets. <laughs> Well, let's see if the AI can really clean this up. Uh, if it's not magical enough, then we may have to yeah. re-record or something. That's fine. So I'm not sure how the recovery would work here exactly. The money is in a wallet, sure. But if the wallet's not in an exchange, how do you how do you get it? Yeah, well, in the article, it's quoted as saying, experts say the money could be seized by cryptocurrency exchanges if the thieves ever tried to move it or spend it. So it seems like if they ever tried to get it out of Bitcoin and into cash, then it could be confiscated at that time. Now, how awful. They can only use the Bitcoin on black market stuff. Actually, <laughs> that's that's almost a character like passing marked bills. Do you, if you have, if you identify a single Bitcoin and they subdivide into two small, two half Bitcoins, are those both traceable back? Those are both traceable because it's all tracked. So those are both traceable back to that single Bitcoin. So you could use it to buy something on one of the dark web markets, and then the person who bought it then goes try to cash it out, and they get nabbed. Potentially. I don't know. I don't know. This is the same problem as always. Crime is easy. Cashing out is hard. But the problem is you never get an actual criminal. They'll probably use some kind of mule to cash things out, and they'll get nabbed. Right. It's like drug dealing. Uh, yep. Yep. Same thing. So I, I expect in this case, uh, since Bitcoin and many crypto coins are trackable, you could somehow mark this transaction as stolen and any further uses of the crypto from that transaction would be flagged so that if it ever pops up in an exchange, it could be seized maybe. I don't know. So Krebs mentioned he had money seized as part of the Liberty Reserve bust back in 2013, which was an early digital currency. And it took him seven years before anyone in the Justice Department even got back to him about getting his money back. They said that it took them that long to get access to it through the IRS. I don't know if I believe that or not. Oh, why was the IRS involved? I don't know. Just they, they, they were the original, they were probably the original law enforcement on whatever the case was, probably. I mean, they said it was laundering money. Yeah, so that would have been... Actually, no, that would have been Treasury Department. Yeah, I don't know. Kind of, maybe I might be misremembering it. I didn't put IRS in the notes. It's possible that I just made that up like an AI. Let's see. Well, I mean, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a law enforcement agency. Mm -hmm. so. It's true. 
So now the question is, is if they even return it. I mean, we've talked before about how they don't really care if the amount stolen is under a certain threshold, which depending on whether you're talking about local police or federal police is either 10K or 100K. The government definitely has a history of just auctioning off seized Bitcoin whenever they seize a dark web market. I don't know if the government's ever actually returned any stolen crypto. No, well, why would it? Yeah. So I did look it up. I mean, crypto is considered property, and if it's involved in a crime, they seize it, and they sell it unless somebody demands its return and can show it's theirs. Which is, show it's theirs part, actually, is probably not too hard with crypto. Well, it's on the blockchain, so yeah. No. You just have I to bet, show that you control the wallet. I bet they just don't want to... I think the problem is... Money. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm saying that most of the people that have crypto are probably people that are focused on privacy or people that are doing, you know, purchases that might be illegal or semi-illegal on the dark web. So when they seize the money, nobody wants to come up and be like, oh, yes, that's mine. And then they go look and they're like, oh, but I see you also spent some money here. And he also... Oh, so uh, they don't just don't want this the government turning their spotlight on them. Yeah, I think, I think potentially. Yeah, there's a, uh, a, a quote from Mark Rash, a former federal prosecutor uh, at the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, and he says the government doesn't need the crypto as evidence, <laughs> but in a forfeiture action, the money goes to the government. Isn't that nice? Isn't that weird? Did you see the, I recently saw the government, there was a post on Twitter about the FBI seized a, like a private safe deposit box company. Have you ever seen, there's a place called The Vault near me. It's in a storefront. It's next to a coffee shop. It's apparently like bank style vaults, like bank style, like what are those, what are those boxes? Uh, Safe to buy the boxes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So apparently they were told they could not write a warrant for the contents of those safe deposit boxes because it belonged to a bunch of other people. So they wrote the warrant for the entire operation. And then they had to quote unquote inventory Every the contents box. of the boxes, and they found millions of dollars in gold and silver and jewelry, and they seized all of it. And the the, the Twitter post that I saw about this was from a uh, lawyer who was suing the government to get it back. He's like, we finally won the lawsuit to get it back. They were just going to keep it, and the, one of the only reasons they got it back is they found a piece of, they found a document from the government that said they were planning on seizing it in order to force forfeiture. Like, the government, like, wrote this down... So basically, the government wrote down, hey, we're going to steal this money. And, they and then they caught. went out and stole it. And then you got caught. Caught. I'm sure there were no consequences for any of the agents involved. Oh, no. I mean, this is why there are several states that are they're fighting the civil, for civil forfeiture laws. Because under civil, for civil asset forfeiture, the government can seize something and just claim that it may be related to a crime. Well, you have crime. to prove... That it's not related to the crime in order to get your property back. Yeah. State of Virginia versus a uh, 2004 Honda Accord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the whole nefarious thing about that is if if they they find, you know, Matt's walking down the street, they do a stop and frisk on Matt, and he's got $5,000 on him. Oh, they just take the money. Yeah. Because he was going to go and buy, buy a car, buy a motorcycle with it. Um, and so they've seized it now, and they're like, Hey, well, you can go through the court system to get your five thousand dollars back, which is going to cost you fifteen to twenty thousand dollars as so, lawyer fees. Yeah. So good luck with that. So uh, it's just outright theft because there people can't afford to get their to to go through the effort to get the money back. 
I mean, the amount of money they would have to steal from you in order to make it worthwhile for you even to fight the fact that they stole it from you would have to be big. Yeah. Unless you happen to cross lawyers that would do it pro bono. Yeah, or, but then they're going to take a percentage of it. They're going to take like... No, pro bono was free. Yeah, but I thought, I thought pro bono was they get paid out of the proceeds. No, I think pro bono is free. I think right. the, the... But why would they do that? Why would they do it just completely for free? I mean, they do it for charities or whatever kind of thing. So you got $5,000 in cash. <laughs> probably not going to do charity work for you. No, but I'm just saying that, you know, there are lawyers that do do work yeah. for you if they think the effort or the, the cause for which they're doing the work is worth it. There probably is one that's dedicated to going against. I donate money, but I can only afford to donate like an hour of lawyer time. <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, that's, you know, that's a lot of theft from the government, just stealing your money and saying, you proved to me that this was not involved in a crime. Instead of having some, instead of the way that the Constitution is written, it's saying, you have to first reasonably explain to a judge why you think something was involved in a crime and what you're going to take and all that. You know? No, but Fourth Amendment, like most of the, cons- the, the amendments of the Constitution, they don't, they don't mean anything anymore. <sighs> On that happy note, there was, there was, there was an interesting thing that, w- that was in the article that actually predated this, this event where a, a law firm... In November of 2022, in the Southern District of Florida, had the court authorized the service of a lawsuit seeking the recovery of stolen digital assets by way of a non-fungible token, or NFT, <laughs> containing text of the complaint and summons, as well as a hyperlink to the website created by the plaintiffs, containing all pleas and orders in the action. So it's like a lawsuit as art now. You know, the blockchain can't contain too much information, right? It can only contain a certain number of characters. I was actually just thinking, like, there's there's probably so many good places we could use blockchains for, like, posting stuff publicly. Like, all lawsuits and all summons and all stuff like that going up on the blockchain so it can't be changed afterwards. And well, you can use a blockchain for that. You don't have yeah. to use the Bitcoin blockchain. Oh, I, yeah, right? that would be more expensive. I would do a, a specially constructed one that... Right. Like like a interplanetary file system, maybe. That now makes me wonder, like an interplanetary file system, what's stored on the blockchain? Is the actual data stored in the blockchain or is the location of the data stored in the blockchain? Well, because if it's a finite amount, I assume it's yeah. the location of the blockchain. So what you're what you're talking about is you put the data on the on yeah, the, so that that's planetary file system so that that's immutable. Right. And then you link to it from the blockchain. So you got two things that are permanent. You yeah. got the link which is on the blockchain and then the data which is on the your planetary file system. Yeah. The IPF. Yeah, because that's what I'd want, is I'd want, like, a durable, permanent record of, you know, like, government minutes, government, it's like, anything you've got to do from the government, like, every government document exists in the open somewhere, where it's not classified, you know, all these lawsuits, all these, just... Yeah, I mean, it'd probably be worthwhile because just the volume to have, like, one blockchain per state or something like that, just to make it easier to, you know, to, to manage... I could also see voting being done on the blockchain, too. Because, again, your vote is preserved forever, and you can go look at it. Of course, the problem is everybody else could look at it, too. So it'd need to be encrypted. And you'd have to have your own key, so you could go validate your vote. Or you could give somebody else your key, so they could validate your vote for you. you kind of interesting. Yeah, that could all be worked out. Yeah. I mean, if someone put the amount of effort into, into, you know, if someone actually sat down and worked through it, I'm sure that's, that could easily be done in a way that still was anonymous and yet secure and verifiable. Well, what I was thinking is that the vote 
like, like, let's say presidential election, the name of the person you voted for would be on the blockchain unencrypted so that anybody could just count the number of votes on the blockchain. The number of times that name appears. Yeah, yeah. And be like, all right, we have a definitive count. And then their your name would be encrypted in there or your like identifier number or something. You've got like a little identifier. Right, right. So that way you can look at yours and be like, yes, mine is correct. Or, I mean, actually you just have a public key signature on it. Oh, uh, right. Well, yeah, yeah. So you just sign it with your, your, your private key. Which nobody has except for you know, technical, technical people, but, yeah. or, I mean, you, you sign it with your public. Yeah, I mean, and you, you, you check verify your body. I guess the only, I guess that still wouldn't guard though, against people just adding make-believe people. That would validate the, your votes in there, but that doesn't guarantee that there's not made up people in there. Man. All right. Anyways, getting distracted. <laughs> A little bit off topic. A little bit. All right. So moving on to the next article. After hack X claims SEC failed to use two-factor authentication. This comes to us from Cyberscoop. Which I don't think we've had any articles from Cyberscoop before, have we? Uh, I don't know. We've had a couple of episodes now, so I can't remember if, <laughs> if we've talked about I don't it. have everyone memorized. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you got to get the transcript done so that can AI it. do all that work for us. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, their X account or Twitter account was hijacked. Shitter. Their shitter account? Yeah, because yeah, it's <laughs> Xitter and X is pronounced she. So... <laughs> It's shitter. Nice. <laughs> That's good. I heard it somewhere. I can't claim. You can't claim you, you can't figured it out. Can't claim I figured it out. Myself. That's good. But Twitter says this happened because the SEC did not have MFA set up on their, on their account. But I think there's an issue with that, and we'll get into that here in a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but the SEC's account was posted that the agency had approved the trading of Bitcoin exchange trade, traded funds ETFs on Tuesday. But the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, said that the statement was false and the Twitter account was compromised. Now, after that happened, Twitter made an official statement, which is, quote, based on our investigation, the compromise was not due to any breach of X's systems, but rather due to an unidentified individual obtaining control over a phone number associated with the at SECGov account through a third party. We can also confirm the account did not have two-factor authentication enabled at the time the account was compromised. We encourage all users to enable this extra layer of security. End quote. So they so two-factor authentication was not enabled, but they blamed it, even though the attacker got in. That's what doesn't make sense. Because this kind of sounds like there's a swim-swapping t- thing taking place, but if that is true, doesn't that mean that they had SMS authentication Two-factor authentication turned on for the account, and then someone swims uh, SIM swap to get the phone number to get the SMS two-factor authentication sent to it. Because unless control over a phone number equates to control over a Twitter account, that's how it reads. Right. That's wild. That's why I said it doesn't make sense what what Tex is saying. He's like an SEC dick. Hey, if I can figure out Taylor Swift's phone number, does that mean I can get access to Taylor Swift's Twitter? Yeah, but not for a billion dollars. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows what she's got in her. So I guess I can, can tweet a Bitcoin scam to all of her billion followers. And well, if AJ says it's true. I would say if you got a hold of her, her phone number, it would be better to to access her bank account via that two-factor authentication token than her Twitter account. I, I, I mean, you think too small. Apparently. 
just log into her bank account. It's like $1 billion in her checking account. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, doesn't she invest anything? She's just holding on to it. She's holding on cash. <laughs> well, hopefully she didn't invest that in the Silicon Valley and be like, oh, here's your $200,000 from your billion. And it's gone. And it's gone. <laughs> so, yeah, that whole statement by Twitter does not make sense to me that simply control over the phone equated to taking over the Twitter account. Because, like I said, either you can access, you, you just controlling the phone number controls the Twitter account. But if they did not have two-factor authentication token or a two-factor authentication set up for that account, then SIM swapping doesn't even make any sense. So it seems to me more like they did have two-factor authentication set up, but it was SMS and the account was compromised that way. Because you're also talking about a government account. Does that mean they were, they were just passing the phone around? Or only one person could post on Twitter because they had the official phone? <laughs> so that just doesn't make any sense. Because you, you think that the, the government SEC account, they would be doing their posting not from a phone, but from a computer where they would log in via some shared credential or whatever to... They're, they're on the phone. phone. I don't know. I don't think that works that way, but that's a funny thought. But and, and and what's what annoyed me, what seems annoying about this whole thing is, only you and I seem to be questioning this. All the articles that I read, because I went through like two or three, saying, "Nah, someone else has said something," or X misspoke, or you know, somebody in the news would question this. But nobody just re- reiterated what X said, blaming the SEC for not having two-factor authentication out. But they did point out that the DHS. Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CIS put out a capacity enhancement guide Oof. for social media account protection. I am enhanced. <laughs> you wish you were enhanced. <laughs> so they recommend in this account that they are recommending this guide that they use MFA, but that's not a regulation and it's not a requirement. It's simply a recommendation. I would have thought that would be a requirement for government agencies because people can use, people treat that as like an official government pronouncement. Was wild. I mean, generally speaking, I, I get that it's a social media account. You probably shouldn't treat it like it's official, but I can't help but imagine that an awful lot of people see one of these government accounts and they treat everything that comes out of it like the gospel. Well, apparently they did because after Saint Jerome's mouth. <laughs> apparently, uh, apparently, a lot of people do because after an announcement happened on Tuesday, the price of Bitcoin spiked up to 48000 Oh, did it? That was actually what I was going to look up. Was like, look up the well, Bitcoin. I have the numbers here, but it didn't spike up. It didn't close the day at 48. It just spiked up for a short period of time on Tuesday back uh, from 46 to 48. Gotcha. But we'll get into those numbers here in a couple of minutes. To quote the article, security researchers and, and telecommunication firms have urged the company for years to adopt best practices for regarding the prevention of SIM swapping attacks, but those warnings have fallen on deaf ears. And I'm not sure what Twitter could do about SIM swapping other than not offering SMS as a second factor. There's a lot of people that just use that. There's a lot of people that still don't have, you know, Google Authenticate or anything on their phone. Like, SMS is what they have. Right, but what's Twitter going to do about it? I mean, they could stop doing it, but then you just don't have two-factor at all for the right. people. What I'm saying is that these people are urging them to simply take away that option. Uh, yeah. You know, because I'm not sure what Twitter themselves could do about preventing SIM swapping. That's fair. Other than, like you said, removing SMS, which then reducing the, the total number of people that are using multi-factor altogether or users. Yeah, I don't have enough money. Nobody's SIM swapping me. Yeah. <laughs> Just look at, I mean, look at your threat model. If nobody's going to SIM swap you, use SMS. 
if you like if somebody broke into my Twitter account, they would get probably negative followers compared to what I've got now. Oh, they broke into our Twitter account. <laughs> uh, but Allison Nixon, the chief research officer of cybersecurity firm Unit 221B. What a terrible name. Is that an apartment that they like started the company at? <laughs> well, my guess is that she probably was working for the Israeli military and that was probably her unit number. And I've seen her name quite a bit. I've seen her name quite But she said there have been security cont- contacts at Telcos trying to reach out to Twitter, but everyone, we, and the community know that work at, on their security team was responsive, has quit. Really a surprise. <laughs> but it seems to me like, hey, I knew Bob at Twitter, so I called Bob whenever there was a problem, and Bob quit, so now I don't call or talk to anybody at Twitter. I'm stuck. I'm I can't do anything. I keep yeah, ball locked. Yeah, so they were just relying on the hero model Yeah. at, at Twitter. But So I tried to do some research because there was all this talk about when Elon took over that a whole bunch of people quit and he, he cut the workforce in half and everything. So I went back and I tried to find references to security folks leaving Twitter. And what I found was on the 9th of uh, November 2022, the head count of their trusted safety team was cut by 50% and and, and 15% of the entire, I'm sorry, 50% of everyone. 50% of everyone was cut yeah. and 15% of that was they actually got, they got off lately. Yeah. <laughs> they only lost 15% of their team. Well, and then on January of 2024, just a couple of days ago, 30% was cut from the trusted safety team. 80% of those were safety engineers and 50% were moderators. But the wrinkle there is, is that the trust and safety team Trust and safety team, that is the team that's responsible for moderating content on the social media, not actual security. I couldn't find anything about security themselves being cut, but the security itself being cut at Twitter. Yeah, I did look, I did check. There are openings though, so. Well, I mean, there are always openings, everybody. You know, there's probably not a couple, there are very few companies that over, have over a thousand people that have no security openings, though, I bet. Sure. Sally was surprisingly low for San Francisco. It was 140 to 240,000, which is a lot of money if you're in Kentucky. But for San Francisco, that's not enough to get a house. I know, but I bet you can get a three three person tent on Hate Street on the corner of Hate and Ashbury. It's three person tent. I saw that those tents cost, I saw those tents cost like $60,000 each or something to put up. There's an article, I recently read an article about this. Uh, but for on, on Twitter's, um, Configuration page, uh, they mentioned that for two-factor authentication, that authentication, there are actually three options: test message, authentication app, or security key. So, like a UBFI, you have to plug in your computer. Right. All right. Yep. So the SEC could have used the better MFA, but didn't. Well, they needed. To, they they had the phone. They just passed around the phone. They figured it was it's something just, you have. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense because, and that would seem to indicate that there's one individual where they kept the phone in a drawer. It's in government. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Just ridiculous. Like, you can have something, have something for the Twitter account. Where's the phone? Where's oh, the phone? it's at Johnny's desk. <laughs> oh, it's dead. Better dead. Dead. We can't tweet anything. Because the thing is with the authentication app, as long as you have that QR code, you can put that QR code on as numerous phones to get the, to get the token. So, going back to what we we're talking about as far as the price of Bitcoin jumping. So, on, on Tuesday, which is when this happened, Bitcoin went from 26.5 to 48,000. But at the end of the day on, t- on Tuesday, it was only at 46,100. 
and ended Wednesday at 46,500 and closed on Thursday at 46,255. And the, the irony of this whole thing is that the Twitter account was hacked on, on Tuesday, announced that the ETFs were, were, were good to go, and then they, they said, oh, well, that's a hack, that's not true. And then the next day, on the Wednesday, they said, oh, yeah, well, ETFs are a go. That makes me wonder. So there's two things. I have two follow-ups on this. Number one, that makes me wonder if the person who hacked this out actually knew. Or was it just quite weirdly coincidental that well, they it, happened to... Well, this is something that's been talked about and expected yeah. for a while. So it may have been coincidental. That's because one of the rumors that people thought this may have been was actually the account wasn't hacked. They just accidentally announced too early. But, of course, that announcement by the chairman seems to negate that. Well, so the other way you could tell that is I would go look at the trading at 48,000 and see if you can find somebody that, like, sold off all the... It didn't spike that much. It only went up 1,500. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to make a lot mm. on doing that. But but it's kind of funny that after they announced the ETFs, the price went down. That's a surprise. <laughs> That's surprising. Right? So it, it it's weird that it would spike, but then when the real announcement came out, it would go down. Maybe they thought it was a second fake announcement or something. I don't know. The the reason that that one of the reasons that we're mentioning this is that you know if you have the option of choosing a SMS method for two-factor authentication or a time-based token using an authenticator app, use the authentication app. Don't use the SMS. Yeah. And of course, the other irony here is that the SEC fucking up again, which I always think is funny. I wonder how many fees they're going to have to pay, or blinds they're going to have to pay for their failure. None. None. Yeah. All right. So Title Three and Title Four here, we're just going to scoot through real fast. <clears throat> uh, title Three is how AI hallucinations are making bug hunting harder. So bug hunters have started using large language models to not only translate or proofread their reports, but also to find bugs. Based on a blog post by Daniel Sternberg of the Curl Project, they received 415 vulnerability reports. I assume this was last year. I don't recall the time frame from yeah. the blog post. And 66% of them were not security issues or normal bugs. And he has a couple of specific examples of this. So, so bug bounty programs, obviously, bring in people that are looking for a quick buck, hopefully without putting in necessary work. They are doing, you know, Nessus scans and looking for quick and easy options to just try and get some money. So they threw some curl code at a large language model and then passed it on as a security vulnerability report. So the problem here is that many times the bug bounties that come from Nessus or some other low effort method are very easy to spot and they can just kick them out very easily. But the reports generated by AI, as we have talked about before, they look legitimate. They look coherent. They waste a lot more time. So, for example, he wrote about a report generated by Google Bard that claimed that code changes for a specific vulnerability had been leaked on the internet. It was an AI hallucination based on an announcement the previous day that the new vulnerability had been discovered given a CVE number and was going to be disclosed. So, Bard took the disclosure and turned it into the code is exposed on the internet. Wow. So one of the ways that they screen for this is they'll request more detail when the, to the submitter of the bug. And the author, Sten, Daniel Stenberg, mentioned that his replies are coming back from um, Bard AI as well. <laughs> because it'll say things like, <laughs> triager, uh, please respond to the triager that this, this, and this, or something like that. It was so this very <laughs> high-level hand-waving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the way that it referred to him as the triager, instead of, like, by name... Daniel, here, like, they just copied it, like, so low effort. So I think that 
this is actually kind of important for a different reason. Like we're talking about how AI is going to be able to write its own code in a couple of years. It can already get most of the way there now, but I think we're still going to have to have people who are trained in writing code because the AI, even if the AI takes on most of the slack, you still have to know enough to troubleshoot why it didn't work when the AI gets you 90% of the way there, but screwed up like one logical operation or something. So, yeah, but this is like the equivalent of friv friv frivolous lawsuits for bug hunters, but cheaper. Much cheaper. Because <laughs> it's wasted a whole bunch of time that could be spent doing real work instead of tracking down something that's completely worthless. And we're going to see a lot more of this type of stuff, not just for bug bounties. Basically, people are just trying AI on everything and a lot of things where it's not going to be successful, but it's going to look really successful. You know, I know a lot of people like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, what, what people should take away from this is, is, you know, don't roll your own bug bounty program. So you need to have like, um, a hacker one or somebody who screens the hackers for your program. So not just anybody can submit bug bounty reports to your program in order to filter the, the this kind of stuff out. Yeah. The guy, the guy who wrote the blog post mentioned that the person who submitted the AI, one of the AI reports, the one he specifically commented on was on hacker one and they had a decent reputation. So it might not have been, it might not have been like a peer script kitty. It might have been someone who was just experimenting. But, you know, but I would, uh, what I would say to that though, is if I were hacker one, he'd be gone. I know. Yeah. That'd be it. I mean, that's the last time he's so, worked with us. So interestingly enough, they did comment that uh, on hacker one, the response is, is if you close out the bounty as not relevant, they get like a ding on their reputation and that's it. So although he did say that he contacted Hacker One about it, they did something else he didn't talk about. I would say it should have been much harsher yeah. situation. Yeah. All right. And for our last one, 23andMe blames negligent breach victim, says it's their own fault. They included this because we talked about the 23andMe breach a couple months ago. Yeah. The super short update. We talked about this before. 23andMe has settled on their strategy. Blame the victims. And it's the easiest way to go. It's the easiest way to go. And factually, I feel like this is called of correct because, I mean... How often do you, if you're an IR at all, how often do you have idiot users that do this to themselves? <laughs> well, I, the thing is that you can blame them if you want, but you're the one not helpful. You're the, well, you're also the one that has some of the knowledge on how they could better secure their account. And you're not also guiding them in that direction by forcing two-factor authentication, having certain password requirements. Yeah, there's, then there's something else here, too, with the 23andMe, because... Oh, uh, to quote the article, uh, unauthorized actors managed to access a certain number of accounts in instances where users recycled their own login credentials. That is, users used the same usernames passwords on 23andMe.com as on other websites that have been subject to prior security breaches, and users negligently recycled and failed to update their passwords following these past security instances which were unrelated to uh, 23andMe, end quote. And the, the meat of this is the fact that even though only 14,000 accounts were breached, which is 0.1% of the users' accounts, if that was all that had happened, then I don't know, maybe they would be totally fine. Well, it would be less bad. It would be less bad, but, but the problem is, is that the way the 23andMe set things up, and we talked about this before, is if you are related to somebody, you can see, and they have set their profile such that they can connect. You can now see all their information for people that are related to you. Right. So 5.5 million ad profiles set up for 
what they call DNA relatives, then they also had something that, that they called DNA relatives profiles, which is another 1.4 million. So on average, each user had access to the gen genetic informa information of about 500 other people. So does that mean, so you have to make your profile available. So that's not how many people you're related to. That's how many people you're related to that set their profile to effectively public. Right. Ooh. Interesting. And one of the things that I'm unclear about because I've never used this service is what is default and what is not default. Yeah, I don't know. I thought about doing 23andMe, but I keep hearing that they like give up DNA evidence to the yeah. police and the government and... Maybe I shouldn't be volunteering more information than I already have given yeah. various companies. Yeah, and they sell it to pharmaceutical companies and drug designers. And yeah, and since you are the Zodiac killer, that is liable to come out. No, no. But I, I would prefer to make all the money on my DNA. If there's money to be made on my DNA. I want to make it. It kills me too because you have to pay for this. You have to pay them for the genetics kit, and then they go and sell your information and give your information away. You and yeah. Yeah, my DNA is not worth that much. But no matter what it's worth, you should still get made for it. <laughs> it's like, here's a Tootsie Roll. I'll give you this for your DNA. I think you're old. <laughs> big, big spender, but would do it. But because of this whole thing, there are four class action lawsuits in, in California already. It's in California. Is it weird that it's in California? I don't know. Is what in California? Yeah, the, the class action lawsuits. Why were they submitted in California and not other places? You have to submit based on certain jurisdic jurisdictional regulations. So it could be that's where they're headquartered or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Or it could be the article only mentioned the floor in California and there are a dozen more scattered throughout the country. I don't know. Uh, but you know what we were talking about before is the 23 me could have forced MFA because they have options for an MFA for authentication apps or email on this, which would have made the credential stuff being much more challenging. Yeah. All right, well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Psych on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.